I want to encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans. This is indeed a long-anticipated day in ministry for me. I have looked forward for many, many, many years now to come to this point in ministry where I'm able to walk with a congregation through one of the most important letters ever penned. And so I have anticipated this day for a decade or more. And you get to be here with me. Amen. Amen. Well, this is not about me. More importantly, and most importantly, this is about Christ. Romans, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have now in your word. As we consider your holy scriptures, Father, would you give us understanding? Father, as we open this inspired text of the letter to the Romans, written so many years ago, penned to address a context that's much different than ours, and yet the truth resonating in these pages is a truth that rescues and sustains us even this very day. And so, Lord, would you give us insight into your word and would you give us joy as we walk through these pages together? We thank you for this time now and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The letter to the Romans has been one of the most transformative and powerful works in existence. English poet Samuel Coleridge said, I think that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. William Tyndale, a great early Bible translator said, for as much as this epistle letter is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and most pure gospel and also a light and way unto the whole of scripture, no man can read it too often or study it too well. John Calvin, great reformer, said, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open to him to understanding the whole of Scripture. John Piper, contemporary in our day, refers to the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans as the greatest letter ever written. He must have thought that because he preached 225 sermons in it over eight years. We're only going to do 224. No, I'm just kidding. Why would these men say this about a letter written 2,000 years ago from a converted Pharisee? How can a converted Pharisee write the greatest letter ever written or write what some refer to as the most profound work ever to be in existence? What is it about Romans that's captivated so many people throughout the ages? I mean, it's been influential throughout the history of the church countless times over. St. Augustine of uh, 
there in North Africa, back in 386 AD, who was such an instrumental part God used, brought to himself and used in the history of the church there early on, in the early church, converted as he read Romans. Martin Luther, even as a Roman Catholic before his conversion, was teaching through Romans. And it was in Romans where he was teaching in a, in a university setting where he became convinced of the grave errors of the Roman Catholic's teaching of justification and became convinced of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which later spurs him towards what we know today as the Reformation. He would later call Romans the chief part of the New Testament and most pure gospel. Why is this? I mean, don't we get the gospel somewhere else other than Romans? Isn't the gospel clear in Ephesians or in Matthew? Most certainly, it is clear. When we refer to Romans as being a giant, a redwood tree of statue. We're not saying it's more important than the other 65 books of the Bible. Not at all. All are equally inspired of the Holy Spirit and all are useful for our correction and training in righteousness. Leviticus has just as much importance as Romans, we could say. We come to Romans today and we understand its importance It's been regarded as one of the most important New Testament books by some because it lays out so clearly and comprehensively the good news of how God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. And so over about 40, 45 sermons, we are going to dive into this gold mine and see, maybe for the first time, or maybe to be rekindled in your own hearts, see how, just how amazing this gospel truly is. So let's read Romans chapter one, beginning in verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome and who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that you'll notice about Romans is that it's not actually a book, it's a letter. An epistle, fancy way of saying letter. Written by Paul to the church at Rome. Paul had been wanting to go to Rome for a long time. He'd never been there. He had nothing to do with the founding of it or the planting of it, but he had longed for various reasons to go there, but had not made it yet. And so until he could get there, see, he was, in, he was planning to go, and he would eventually get there by means of 
God's providence in other ways, perhaps he wasn't expecting, but until he could get there, he decides to write this letter to the Romans, to the Christians at Rome to introduce himself, but also to make sure that when he did arrive in Rome, that they were united, that they were believing the same gospel together. Also, Paul who was an apostle, we'll talk more about that in a moment, was wanting to address some problems that had emerged, developed in the Roman church. And so he does that by not necessarily attacking the particular problem, but he does it by laying out in great detail the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what you have in Romans chapter one through 11, a very detailed description of what the gospel is. And then in chapters 12 through 16, you have the implications of the gospel. So you could say this, chapters one through 11, gospel explained, chapters 12 through 16, gospel applied. That's how Romans is structured. Not to say you won't find application in Romans one through 11, you most certainly will. Today we'll see how even a greeting can apply. Be helpful. Not to say you're not going to find descriptions of the gospel in chapters 12 through 16. You most certainly will. By and large, this is how Paul constructs this letter so that he describes in great detail this beautiful gospel of grace and then he applies this same gospel into the lives of these brothers and sisters at Rome. By the Holy Spirit and by extension, us today. Now, I said earlier that Paul had never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church at Rome. He didn't start the church there. And we're not exactly sure, at least by name, who did. Roman Catholics claim it was Peter and therefore build this whole hierarchical structure of what they uh, believe to be the Pope. And that Peter was the founding pastor at Rome. But that doesn't seem to be the case. It would not make sense for Paul to write a comprehensive letter like this to the church at Rome if Peter was in fact its founder and he never mentions Peter in the letter. It would seem odd if Peter was in fact the founder. Others say it was Paul, but Paul makes clear in verse 10 and in other places that he had never been there. So we're not exactly sure by name who planted the church. Most, most agree that the church was likely started by Jewish Christians who were probably converted in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Go to Acts chapter two, you'll see in verse 10 that in the list of people who were gathered there at Pentecost on that day, there were visitors from Rome. Perhaps some of these on that very day were converted and then go back and ultimately see a church established in Rome. And by the way, just a side note, that should encourage you. In some weird way, it should encourage you that we don't know who founded the church at Rome because what it reminds us is that God uses ordinary Christians to do amazing things. Church at Rome is one of the most well-known churches in history because we have the letter to the Romans. And God used very ordinary, simple people, unnamed, unknown to us, known to him, to start this amazing gospel work there. From be encouraged. God can use ordinary people just like you and I to do extraordinary things for his glory. So Paul begins this letter, typical greeting, but keep in mind he's writing to a church he's neither founded nor visited. So he opens this introductory way 
And as he opens this letter, he does so motivated by three things, all of which have their basis in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to use the word gospel a lot in Romans. When I mean gospel, what I'm referring to is the message and work of who Jesus is and what he did so that redemption can be received. When we say gospel, that's what we're talking about, the person and work of Jesus Christ to save sinners, to gather them into the kingdom of God. So Paul opens this letter. He's motivated by three things, all of which have their basis in this good news. Gospel means good news. In this good news of Jesus Christ. We're gonna walk through this this morning. He, he, he's motivated by three things. Let me just give them to you up front. He's motivated by a gospel-centered calling, a gospel-saturated message, and a gospel-driven mission. We're gonna walk through these together today. First of all, we're gonna see his motivation from a gospel-centered calling. Look at verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Again, Paul's never been to Rome, and yet as an apostle to the Gentiles, he very much desires this fellowship and relationship with them and in some ways seems to feel responsible as an apostle to Uh, established this relationship with him to check in on the church there. But he knew that the Christians there needed to be properly introduced to him. He's not been able to go there in person, so he wants to make sure that he's writing to these people, that, that they know who he is and what he's about. So as he introduces himself in a as, as is typical in a greeting that we see from that day and time, he begins with, his self, with himself, Paul, I'm the, I'm the one that's sending this letter, I'm the one that's putting this letter together, and I, that's who I am, I'm telling you who I am up front, very much different than our letters where we don't tell the people who we are until the end. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Why do we do it that way? But to get to the end of a letter or an email to figure out who's sent this, especially if they got a weird email address. So he introduces himself and he gives his credentials, so to speak. Let's consider them. First of all, he says, Paul, a servant. Where do you do loss? I mean, servant or more accurately, slave. A term that expresses complete devotion to another. So out of the box, Paul is clarifying that he is not at all about himself, nor does he even truly belong to himself. He's a slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He understands himself to be completely at the Lord's disposal. Had you brought the New City Catechism to Paul and ask him the first question, what is your only hope in life and death? He would have said that I am not my own, but belong to God. That's what he would have said. He would have understood that he's not his own, that he's not about himself. He would have understood that he is a devoted servant, a slave, if you will, in a most positive sense to Christ. And that is, in fact, what every follower of Jesus is, a servant, a slave of Christ. We're not hourly employees where we check in and check out. 
If you are in Christ, you are his slave. In the most positive sense of the word, you belong to him. Your life is completely to be devoted to him and following him. You're not your own. You live in a culture that's going to tell you the opposite. You live in a culture that's going to say, oh, you are your own. Make your way. You belong to yourself. Do your own thing. That's not true for the follower of Christ. You're not your own. You belong to another. That's Paul. Out of the box, he's like, listen, Romans, I'm not writing to you as a self-made man. I am a slave of Jesus. Third word in the letter. Not only is he a servant, he's an apostle. Here Paul highlights his apostolic calling. He was an apostle. Simply put, one who is sent. New Testament times, an apostle was almost like an ambassador. One who is sent with some level of authority to represent another. As an apostle, you would, you would carry a, an authority, one sent with the authority here of Jesus. And this, this apostleship of Paul is essential that, that we see this early on. Because many times people in culture today, even in churches, maybe some of you have done this. Many times people will try to pit Jesus and Paul against each other. They will say things like, well, I know that's what Paul said, but Jesus never said that. And therefore, I'm a Jesus follower. And you begin to open yourself up for a whole lot of other things because Jesus didn't particularly address this particular thing, even though Paul did. Well, that's what Paul said. So there's almost this uh, layer of authority. Well, Jesus never said it. Paul might have said it, but Jesus is the one who I follow. Therefore, I'm going with Jesus. Well, that sounds good, right? Jesus is king. He's Lord. He matters most. But to be an apostle meant that you were sent with the authority of Jesus. It meant that, you you see, the problem with this kind of view is the fact that, that the things Paul said, the things Paul wrote, carry the authority and endorsement of Jesus. That's why when we come to a letter that, it addresses particular things and we read and we hear it and, and maybe Jesus didn't quite address it in the specific ways that he did in his own ministry. We know that Paul's an apostle. He carries the authority, the endorsement of Jesus. So Paul's writings as an apostle, were not, they're not simply the product of a man. They carry the full weight and authority of Christ because he was an apostle. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was a slave and an apostle, one totally devoted to Christ, yet one sent out with the authority of Christ. He understood, though, that this role as a servant apostle was one with purpose. He was set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel, good news. But it says he's set apart. When did that happen? Just think about that for a minute. When was Paul set apart? Maybe 
you think, well, it was Acts chapter nine, the Damascus Road. Saul was going actually to persecute Christians, but on the road to Damascus, he's confronted by Jesus and he's completely transformed. That's when he was appointed as an apostle. Wrong. Not so. According to Paul's own words in Galatians chapter one, verse 15, but when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Paul understood that his calling as a servant, his calling as an apostle, his being set apart for this gospel happened before the foundations of the world. This was long before he was born, that this mission was given to him. Knowing Paul before Acts chapter nine, that would have been hard to believe. Because this man who gave permission and was even involved in the killing of Christians, persecuting the church, this man was converted and transformed and became one of the greatest theologians and missionaries the world has ever known. Which by the way, should give us pause when we see others wreaking havoc and living however they want to in the world, when we grow discouraged and disheartened over the most ungodly of people in the world, we should remember God likes and delights in taking ungodly, wicked people living like hell and transforming them to cause them to be on a mission for the sake of heaven and the kingdom of God. This is what God does. He transforms people by his grace. So next time you, you're, you're frustrated at, at some wicked person, ungodly person in your life, maybe, just maybe, you don't know this, maybe God set them apart before the foundation of the world to be some amazing servant of the king. So instead of fighting them, maybe you should love them and point them to Christ. So right here in verse one, Paul's introduction of himself to the Roman church, we already have a testimony to the gracious work of the gospel. This is what God does. Paul was a man who knew that his life was indebted to Jesus and he's ready to spend the rest of his life for the sake of this gospel. Friend, I just wonder if we would even consider ourselves in the same way. No, you're not an apostle in the same sense that, that Paul was an apostle and that you didn't have the same exact role that Paul had. I get that. But I wonder if we view ourselves in the same light that Paul did. He begins with this great introduction of his gospel-centered calling. But then as we move on the following verses, we, we see that one of the second things or the second thing in this that, that motivates him to, to write this letter is, is Paul's about this gospel-saturated message. Now, in many letters, even in the New Testament, the opening greeting includes the author followed immediately by greeting to the recipients of the letter. You could just go to the book of Corinthians or Ephesians. Just turn over to the next book of the Bible there in your New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter one, you'll see this. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. That's normative, you'll see that. 
I'm Paul, I'm writing to the church. Verse one, I'm Paul or Peter or whoever. Verse two, to this church. That doesn't happen in Romans, does it? You have Paul, servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, and then you have to wait to verse seven to get to to the church at Rome. Paul can barely mention the word gospel in verse one without being overwhelmed by its message and therefore wanting to elaborate on it some. And so when he introduces himself as one set apart for the gospel, he can't help but, let me talk about this gospel a little bit here. Let me, let me just give a summary of this gospel already. And so before he spends the next 11 chapters unpacking in glorious detail this gold mine of gospel truth, he gives us a brief summary right here in the first few verses of his introduction. Two things he gives us here. He gives us the source of the gospel and the substance of the gospel. This was his message. He's quite clear there at the end of verse one, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. God. This was not Paul's gospel. This was not his message. It did not originate with him. It didn't originate with Peter. It didn't originate with the other disciples. This gospel originated with God himself. He is the author of this wonderful news. And Paul understood that, that he was not the inventor, not the, not the creator of this message. He understood that he was only the messenger. He's the, only, he's the, he's the one that's to, to, to be the messenger, to take this gospel. It's not his invention, but it was a gospel that had long existed. Indeed, verse two, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Guess what Paul just said? This gospel is not my invention. This is God's gospel. And by the way, you can go to the Old Testament and find it. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You know, some say that the Old Testament is filled with law and the New Testament is filled with grace. That's just not true. Grace bleeds throughout the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation's end. The gospel is preached as early as Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord promised to bruise the head of the serpent through the offspring of Eve, pointing us forward to a time when there would be one that would come and complete this work we call redemption, salvation. All throughout the Old Testament, we have this promise being made, this promise being given, and prophecies being given about the coming of one who would be the one who could deliver us from sin once and for all. It's a critical point to make. We, we need to keep in mind that the gospel belongs to God, which means it's not ours 
to change. Sometimes Christians may be thinking they have good motives. Attempt to repackage the gospel a bit. And in the repackaging of the gospel, they, they kind of remove some of the harder things of it. And ultimately what they end up providing is not a gospel at all. Kind of a self-help thing. Makes you feel good about yourself in life. Christians oftentimes try to do this. They'll try to repackage the good news in a way that softens the offense of the gospel. But friends, that is not our responsibility. Friends, God doesn't need your help with his message. It's his message. He has given it. The gospel doesn't need your help or creativity. God has not been waiting thousands of years for you to come along. Oh, finally one who who can make this sound better. That's not at all the case. Friends, the gospel is entirely sufficient in itself as it stands to change the vilest of sinners. The source of the gospel is in God, not you, not Paul, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in God. The substance of the gospel. Now, we're gonna spend many weeks wading through the substance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially as we walk through these first 11 chapters of Romans. But here, Paul kind of gives you an appetizer. That's probably a bad illustration, but he gives you a little, little taste of it as he summarizes it quite compactly here. He, he makes the point quite clear that the gospel is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. There's the substance. This is about his son. This gospel of God is about Jesus. That's who it's about. That's what the substance is. The substance of the good news is totally centered upon the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, no gospel. Notice here the the text. The gospel of God, verse one, concerning his son, and then he kind of finishes that that thought at the end of verse four, Jesus Christ our Lord. Gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. But but notice, even after he says concerning his son, there's more explanation of who this is. It's gonna be the case in Romans. Just when you think a thought is finished, there's more to say. Note that the flow from concerning his son to Jesus Christ our Lord is broken up by two important descriptions about Jesus. We can divide them up in this way, his messiahship and his lordship. Notice, notice it says in verse three, concerning his son, his messiahship is being described here, who descended from David according to the flesh. Paul is pointing to Jesus's humanity here, but also to the fact that Jesus fulfilled the promise given to David. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, Trey's equipped class this morning, Old Testament, It was said in there, and it's true, you will not understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. So all you New Testament swimmers and Old Testament avoiders, you're gonna starve. 
without a good understanding of the Old Testament. So there, there are going to be times after time again, we're going back to the Old Testament to understand more clearly and fully what Paul is saying in the New Testament. Second Samuel chapter seven. This is what we call the, the Davidic covenant or God's covenant with David. There he's, he's making this promise to David, beginning in verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great like the name of, a great, of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is kind of dual fulfillment here. We know that Solomon comes, but it's pointing beyond Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, which Solomon does, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Guess what? Solomon dies. He doesn't live forever. He does live forever, but not in the form of a man here. So David, David is given this promise that is an eternal promise which means that there's this fulfillment that's going to have an eternal weight given it. By the time you get to Matthew chapter one, there in the very first book of the New Testament, the very first chapter, the very first verse, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You can follow and you can trace his genealogy, his lineage there, all the way down, even to verse six, where you see that from the line of David comes Jesus. And so that's exactly what Paul's getting at here concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. The eternal son of God came to dwell as a man, to be born in the line of David as the Old Testament promised, to be the coming Messiah, the deliverer, the one would establish the kingdom of God and reign over it forever. The seed of David is the promised Messiah. That's what we're getting at here. That's what Paul's pointing to in verse two. He's promised beforehand through the prophets. One of those promises were given to David concerning his son descended from David according to the flesh. So there's his Messiahship described, but then there's his lordship. So verse three, his son descended from David, verse four, and was declared... Or appointed, probably better, appointed, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. He's declared, or he's appointed here, we're told, to be the Son of God. How? The Son of God in power, how? According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So what we're seeing here is that Paul is saying is that Jesus was appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Most believe that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. By his resurrection from the dead. This is important because only a king who conquers death can reign forever. If you think back to the promise given to David. This is not saying 
that Jesus was not God before his death. He was, in fact, the Son of God from all eternity. But he had emptied himself and humbled himself in the form of a man, the form of a servant, as a man to accomplish the work of redemption. He lived life as a man. Full humanity of Jesus. But during his earthly ministry, we know that his glory and his power through the emptying of himself were hidden from view. He he laid them aside temporarily to live life as a man. But when he was raised from the dead and he ascends back into heaven, he went from being this lowly servant to this conquering king. That's what Paul's now describing. He's not saying Jesus becomes God. No, he's always been God. The son of God has always been God. He's been that way from eternity. But now in his humanity, he goes from this lowly, this being a lowly servant to now this conquering reigning king. That's what Paul's getting at there in verse four. He's now declared, appointed to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So both of these are essential pieces, Paul is saying, to who Jesus is. He came as a man in fulfillment of the promise given to David. He lived as a man. He died as a substitute for sin, but he was raised up in triumph by the Holy Spirit and he now reigns as conquering king. It's a summary of who Jesus is and what he did. It's a substance of the gospel, and it's indeed good news. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we welcome you and we thank you for being here, and we're glad you're here. You're always welcome here. But what Paul summarizes here in these first few verses, and what I've just attempted to help summarize as well in this person of Jesus, this work of Jesus, that he lived life as a man and he conquered sin and he was raised from the dead. He now reigns victorious. All of this was necessary for people like you to be saved. It's necessary for every one of us in this room, every person in the world that lives and exists and breathes and every person that's ever been, this is the necessary work that was required for you and I to be made right with God It's not a work that you can perform. If you're trying to make yourself right with God, friend, you will fail. This is the gospel of God, God's good news of his finished work in his son that he sent as he promised and he raised victorious over death, hell and the grave once and for all. Friend, if you would simply quit trusting in yourself and turn away from the things of this world and put your hope in him, the promise of scripture is that you will be saved you will be saved. Christians, this is the good news that has made us who we are. This is the good news that we preach. This is the message that compelled Paul to do what he did every single day. So he can't even write this greeting without without sharing the gospel. So we see See Paul's gospel-saturated message, but, but number three, we know that Paul had a gospel-driven mission. He had a calling centered on the gospel. He had a message saturated with the gospel. He had now a mission compelled or driven by this same gospel, verses five through seven. Concerning his son, we see at the end of verse four, after he's descended from David, declared to be the son of God, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Look briefly here at these remaining verses. Several things that we need to point out about this mission. Number one, it was a a a clearly defined mission. Verse five, he says that he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. Now, that, that English phrase may land on your ears in one of two ways. Think about the obedience of faith. It could be taken as the obedience that stems from faith. Faith happens, obedience follows. So the obedience that comes from faith or the activity of faith itself. The context seems to point to the latter, that it is the activity of faith that Paul exists for, that his mission was to receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, to preach the gospel in anticipation of men and women and children responding in faith to this gospel. Now we're gonna see, and you read your Bible, we know that the gospel produces obedience. In fact, we're gonna see how chapters 12 through 16 say that. Chapters one through 11, the gospel fuel versus chapters 12 through 16. Plus, Paul would not have known a gospel that was divorced from obedience. He would have not made a good American Christian. He just wouldn't have. He would not have known heaven live like you want to. He would not have known grace apart from life in that same grace. He would not have known a gospel detached from striving and laboring and toiling and endeavoring and persevering, bearing good works. He would have known no such gospel. The gospel that so many preach and teach today, Paul would have been so depressed by. So, It was a defined mission. His mission was to preach the gospel and calling people to faith. He knew that this was his divine task, but it was also a purposeful mission. Notice it says, he's been given grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Not Paul's name. Jesus' name. For the sake of his name, Paul's ultimate purpose was not for his own benefit, not for his own glory, but his sole purpose for ministry was for the glory and honor of Jesus. And we know that that's oftentimes kind of a a Christian thing to say, right? Well, everything's done for the glory of God. But why is it so often we live as if it's for our own glory? Paul was clear. He had a clear calling, a clear mission, a clear message, and he knew that it was ultimately for the sake of Christ's name. Glory of Christ compelled Paul 
to do what he did. And friends, it should compel us as well. His purpose was ultimately not about Paul. It was ultimately not about the Romans. It was ultimately about the glory of Jesus Christ. All of this was being done for the sake of his name. It was a defined mission, it was a purposeful mission, it was a global mission, verse five, still yet. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Among all nations. The gospel brings people of all backgrounds and ethnicities together. It was for all nations, he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He's writing to the Romans, including you Christians at Rome, which was a church that had early Jewish beginnings and now was shifting to become more Gentile in their existence. But we know that the church at Rome had both Jew and Gentile in it. And Paul's making that clear. This is what the gospel does. It saves sinners from all nations and brings them together as one family. Friends, this is huge because it establishes so many things in our understanding as Christians. This gospel, which Paul preached for the sake of Christ's name among all nations, Paul we know was, was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He had that kind of, that focused ministry, not that he didn't ever minister to Jews, he did. But in, in fact, in many ways, he's trying to write here in Romans to help Jew and Gentile understand their relationship together. Friends, it changes everything when we think as a biblical believer. I'm gonna spend the rest of my days, by God's grace, trying to convince people not to be thinking through the lens of a nationality. 